When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the fourth and final episode in the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast series about the media and the death of Terry Sawchuk. Uh, what we want to do in our final uh, part of the series is give our listeners an idea of who Terry was, both as a person and as a player. Some of the best hockey writers ever paid tribute through their columns and stories right around the time uh, of Terry's death and the funeral. Now, the first to put something uh, to paper and actually have something out there was Jack Berry, the uh, fine hockey writer for the Detroit Free Press, who spent a lot of years covering the Red Wings when Terry played for them. He wrote this piece for the June 1st edition of the Free Press. The thing I remember most about Terry was that in the tight games, he just would never give up a goal at a crucial time. He never let in a bad goal. Fred Huber, for many years the public relations director of the Red Wings and as familiar a figure to the fans as almost any of the players, was stunned over the death of former Red Wing goalie Terry Sawchuk Sunday. Sawchuk died of cardiac arrest following abdominal surgery in New York, his third operation in a month, growing out of an in incident described as, quote, horseplay between Sawchuk and New York Ranger teammate Ron Stewart. Sawchuk was 40. Huber remembered the glory years of both the Red Wings and Sawchuk, and they were closely intertwined. I remember the 1950 or 52 playoffs against Montreal. It was the seventh game of the finals, and the Canadians brought up Gay Stewart from the minors, and he broke in twice on Terry, once in the third period with the score tied, and then in overtime. Stewart made what should have been the game-winning shot each time, low shots. Somehow, Terry kept the puck out, and those were the two greatest saves under pressure I've ever seen. Bob Kinnear was particularly shaken by Sawchuk's death. Kinnear discovered Sawchuk for the Red Wings when Terry was just 12 years old in Manitoba. Kinnear said, the Red Wings asked me to scout for them in Winnipeg around 1944 and gave me money to build an outdoor rink in East Kildonan. I had a 10-team house league and Terry's older brother Mitchell came out and he played goal. Terry followed him and he played defense. 
Terry's brother died suddenly, and after that I suggested to Terry that he try playing goal, and he brought the equipment and was great from the time he put the pads on. Bob Kinnear went on to say that I wrote so many glowing letters on Terry to Jack Adams that Jack asked me to bring Terry to Detroit, and we came down on the train, and Terry was only 14 at the time. Terry worked out with the wings, and afterwards I was talking to Jack Adams, and Jack Stewart came along. Stewart was the best defenseman in the league at that time, and he told Jack that Terry was going to be great, and of course... He was right. When Terry was 16, we signed him to a tryout form, and within a year, Jack brought him down to Windsor, where he played six games with the Spitfires Junior A team. Jack turned him pro and sent him to Omaha. In Omaha, Sawchuck won the Rookie of the Year award and a promotion to Detroit's Indianapolis farm in the American League the next year, and he won the Rookie of the Year award there too. Harry Lumley was the big man in goal for the Red Wings then, so Sawchuck spent another year at Indianapolis. But Terry showed so much in a seven-game tryout with Detroit, one shutout, and only 16 goals against, that he moved Lumley right out of the picture, even though Lum had backstopped the Wings to the Stanley Cup. In all his uh, seven years with the Red Wings, Sawchuck was never particularly close to to the other players. He got along with them, but he was pretty much of a loner. He was alternately very cocky and very unsure of himself, personally, Huber recalls. Newsmen uh, usually were unsure about which face Sawchuck would, would show. At times, he was coarse, and at other times, very, very helpful. His many injuries often heralded the end of his career, but somehow Sawchuck would get himself together, and he was always ready to play. One of the guttiest, grittiest, greatest performances he ever gave came in the 1967 Stanley Cup semifinals against the Chicago Blackhawks when at that time he was 37 years old and playing of course for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Leaf starter Johnny Bauer was injured in the first period of the game in Chicago and Sawchuk replaced him. Almost immediately, Bobby Hull fired a cannon shot that caught Sawchuk in the shoulder and he crumpled to the ice but he kept the puck out of the net somehow. Well, at that point, we all knew that Bauer wasn't going to return to the game. He was hurt too badly. So Sawchuck had to continue. He was the last line of defense, basically. And he came up with two of the finest periods of playoff goalkeeping ever seen. I remember watching that game, and that game alone cemented in my mind the fact that Terry Sawchuk was indeed the best goalkeeper that I would ever see play. His inspired play in that game and later on in the playoffs led the Leafs to victory and they ousted Chicago and then went on to beat Montreal for the Stanley Cup with Sawchuk a game as a heroic figure. That was his last great hour. What is that rhyme, asked Kinnear? Wednesday child is full of woe. Terry was born on a Wednesday and he had a lot of troubles, but he was the greatest goalkeeper I've ever seen. And as far as I was concerned, a wonderful kid. 
On that very same day, the sports editor of the Detroit Free Press, Joe Falls, a legendary figure in his own right, paid tribute uh, to Terry as well. And this is the column he wrote. And this uh, really sums up a lot of who Terry was uh, and from a, a guy who could really write the sporting, uh, the sporting news. And uh, he was just a great writer. Joe writes, The first time I met Terry Sachuk, he was raging with anger and shouting obscenities and throwing his skates at a photographer. This is a 1953. In all the years to follow, he never really changed. Terry was the greatest goalie I ever saw and the most troubled athlete I ever knew. He was utterly brilliant and utterly unpredictable. As steady as he was under the pressure of his profession, and this was the true trademark of his greatness, his almost unbelievable steadiness when things got hottest, Sachuk was just as unsteady the moment he stepped from the ice and became a person instead of a performer. You were always careful when you wanted to talk to him after a game. He'd be sitting there in a red wing dressing room with his head down. He'd still have his pads on and he'd be sweating profusely and he'd be looking down at the floor, letting the sweat trickle to the end of his nose and to the point of his chin and fall in steady droplets to the floor. You never knew how he was going to react to your questions. Even on the nights he won, you just never knew. You'd see him sitting there, lost in his thoughts, and some nights you'd lose your nerve. You'd say to yourself, oh well, you'll get him another time. Let's see what Gordy and Alex and Sid have to say. That's because too many nights, even in the winning nights, it didn't make any difference what you asked Sachuk. He'd look up at you with that wet, reddish, scarred face of his, and he'd tell you to fly off, Buster, get lost, get the hell out of here, go ask your questions elsewhere. And yet, there were other nights when he'd sit there and he'd talk to you with almost a boyish innocence, and he'd say some of the most trite things imaginable, like, gosh, is that right? Or, gee, I didn't know that. And this would bother me because I could never understand how he could be so vile some nights and so childlike the next. It would be easy to say that Terry Sawchuck was a mixed up man. You could get plenty of people to support this theory, his family, his friends, and his own teammates. But I always thought it was more than that. I always felt he was a victim of his profession. And so I always felt just a little sorry for him. Among all the things to remember about Terry Sawchuck, this is the paramount. He was a great goaltender as a professional. This is how he should be judged. And the most important thing to remember about him is that he performed in an era when there was tremendous emphasis on individuality. He excelled in an era when goalkeepers didn't have the protection of face masks. He played at a time when the goaltenders went all the way. There was no backup man on the bench to help him out when things got tough. Trainer Lefty Wilson was Sawchuck's backup man. The goaltender had to stand there and he had to take it all and he had to come back the next night and take it all again. One needs only to examine Sawchuck's five-year record from 1950 to 55 to understand his greatness. In those years, 
the greatest years the Detroit Red Wings ever had. He had goals against averages of 1.98, 1.90, 1.90 again, 1.92, and 1.94. Never above two. What this meant was that on any night, the Red Wings could score two goals, and Shucks Gordy Howe could get that many himself, uh, even when he wasn't feeling well. That would mean the Red Wings would win. No wonder they won those seven straight titles. They've always said that it takes a special kind of person to be a hockey goalie. Myself, uh, I was a goalie. Not a great one, not a good one, but I enjoyed the position. I really look back, wonder why. Well, Terry Sawchuk was a special kind of person. Hockey held an overpowering lure to Terry. He was like the moth and hockey was like the flame. He knew that the flame would consume him if he got too close to it, and yet he was unable to stay away from it. Actually, the only time Terry was happy, completely, totally happy, was when he was in those big brown bulging pads with his legs dangling over the trainer's table and a cigarette dangling from his lips and he was exchanging insults with his teammates. This was the life he was born for. The life he lived for, it seemed like the ideal life for Terry Sawchuk would be one long road trip. 365 days a year with a game every night to be followed by a few beers with the boys at one of the locals. Unfortunately, all the games ended and the seasons ended. The lights would go out and he would have to go home June, July, and August. These were the long months, the difficult months for Terry Sawchuk. These were the months when he was the most restive, the most restless, and the months when life was most difficult for him and also for those around him. I used to worry about Terry Sawchuk. I knew that hockey was his whole life, his whole being, his whole purpose for existing, and I'd wonder what he was thinking when he knew that it was starting to come to an end for him. I wondered how he'd take it all when he realized they didn't need him anymore, that they didn't want him anymore. But I put those thoughts out of my mind because they got too grim, even for me. Now I don't have to think about them anymore. The life he lived, the life he needed, led to his ultimate fate. Another of hockey's great writers, Jim Proudfoot, penned this uh, summary of Terry's existence on June 1st in the Toronto Star. Jim writes, Terry Sawchuk, who died yesterday, earned widespread recognition as the finest goalkeeper professional hockey ever saw, but it's much more likely he'll be remembered as a man whose luck was almost all bad. He was as famous for the jinx that clung to him as he was for his puck-stopping genius. Terry Sawchuk's life was a ceaseless procession of tragedies. For each of the for each of his achievements, and there were many, there were half a dozen sad reversals, sickness, injury, personal heartbreak. He endured them all regularly, and when he passed away in New York after failing to withstand major intestinal surgery, he was alone, divorced from the woman he married 17 years ago, separated from his children, and ostracized by most of his teammates. Sawchuk's brother Jerry and Emil Francis, who was coach and general manager of the New York Rangers, uh, was his boss, had been with Terry in his last few days. 
Sawchuck was 40, a physical and nervous wreck, and all washed up as a hockey player after 20 big league seasons. Rangers didn't want him anymore, although there'd been rumors he was to be shuffled west to St. Louis for at least another winter or two. Terry had been the best even as recently as three years ago when his miraculous goaltending against Chicago and Montreal produced a Stanley Cup championship for the Leafs a most unexpected Stanley Cup championship, to say the least. No goalie ever played more sensationally than he did in those 1967 playoffs when he was shoved into the lineup in place of the ailing Johnny Bauer. That was, as Sawchuk himself said, the pinnacle of his hockey career. But his reputation had been made when he was much younger and much healthier, almost two decades previously. Then, as the youthful netminder for the Detroit Red Wings, he was a league all-star in his rookie campaign and in the two following seasons. Sawchuck's average never climbed above two goals per game through his first five years in Detroit, and during that period, he registered an incredible 56 shutouts. Building a cushion, he was able to boost to a lifetime total of 103, a record for the National Hockey League as we write this in 1970. Sawchuk began in hockey at age 10, inheriting a set of goalie pads when an older brother died of a heart attack. Tragedy and misfortune were to, be de to bedevil him the rest of his life. His right arm was permanently deformed because of a mishap in a boys' football game. Three operations removing 60 bone chips didn't correct the condition, but they did alleviate the discomfort. As a, an 18-year-old youngster in the minor leagues, Terry took a stick in the eye and his sight was saved only because a famous eye surgeon happened to be in Omaha the day of the injury. His Detroit boss, Jack Adams, ordered him to lose a few of his 228 pounds. He dropped 40 to 188, then 168, and battled forever afterwards to try and put weight back on. Mononucleosis, which is a blood infection, interrupted Terry's career in 1955 after he'd been traded to Boston. Later, he quit the Bruins following a nervous collapse. They then returned him to Detroit in a trade that sent Johnny Busick to Boston. Somebody skated across his left hand, the one he caught pucks with, severing all the tendons. He never could close his fist thereafter. Doctors told him he'd never regain use of the hand. He was hospitalized for an operation to remove a bowel obstruction. Just a litany of illnesses that Terry uh, seemed to have to uh, endure constantly. During the 1964 playoffs, Terry was confined to hospital for treatment of a pinched shoulder nerve, but was allowed out of the infirmary enough to play each game and then return immediately to his hospital bed. He was superb in that series, but Detroit lost in the finals to Toronto. In 1966, it was discovered that uh, Sawchuck had two ruptured vertebrae and he underwent spinal surgery to try and correct that condition. It did uh, alleviate the pain that he seemed to constantly endure and uh, a few other minor disorders and allowed him to stand up 
but he never was able to stand on his feet for more than a couple hours at a stretch. Those were the, the major disasters that Terry faced through his career, but they weren't the only. He took over 400 facial stitches and uh, many necessitated surgery, both inside his mouth, his cheekbones, and, and there's a very famous picture that was uh, not actually... Uh, an actual picture but was uh, photographically enhanced that showed all the injuries Terry's face had endured over his career. Many people have seen that picture. Perhaps understandably, Terry was not a happy person. Most of the time, he was a morose loner who, in later years, had periods of heavy drinking. Human relationships were difficult for him. His wife, Pat, who lived in the Detroit area, even when he was playing in other cities, had sued him for divorce previously in 1958. They reconciled at that time, but they split up for good in the fall of 1970. A Leaf player who'd been a teammate uh, through his three years with the Leafs said Yuki was here for three years and never made which you'd call a friend. The only one was Marcel Pronovo, who'd been with him during the good days in Detroit. Almost any newsman who covered hockey in recent years has a Sawchuck story. His style was to listen placidly to a question, then look the reporter in the eye and snarl, get lost, or words to that effect. A simple question, sensible in his case, such as, how do you feel, would elicit this response, with my hands, dummy, to a query about some incident. You saw the game, didn't you? But when he'd had one of his good nights, Sawchuk could be engaging and often downright cordial. Jim Proudfoot then did uh, include this this paragraph in, in his uh, column. He said, he once approached this reporter with tears in his eyes and apologized for having been surly. I get so wound up at times, I just don't know what I'm saying, was Terry's statement to Jim Proudfoot. On balance, most people were willing to forgive him and for being so irritable. Life seemed to be an ordeal for Terry Sachuk. Terry's made a lot of money out of hockey, but retained little of it and had some reason for bitterness toward the game. He was constantly on the move despite his greatness. He was at his very peak in 1955 when the Detroit club abruptly traded him. Wings got him back, but left him open in the 1964 draft and Toronto snapped him up. Sawchuk was sent to Los Angeles when the new NHL teams were stocked with an expansion draft in 1967. A few weeks later, he was named Toronto's top player of that season. To him, it was just another kick in the teeth. He was used to it. Of course, we couldn't possibly produce episode an episode like this without hearing... Uh, on the man who was at the time the Dean of Toronto Sports Writers, the great Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star, also writing this on June 1st in a column entitled, Death Struck in Overtime. Trouble was with Terry Sawchuk always. Tragedy had come disguised as mere trouble to to end the turbulent career of hockey's greatest goalie, modern, ancient, or prehistoric. If he hadn't been a legend in his own time, he probably would be alive today. 
Terry Sawchuk had developed the art of stopping a puck to such a degree of finesse that men who should have known better believed he had dispensation from father time. Only Punch Imlac, then manager and coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, stopped the clock at the precise second. Imlac unloaded Sawchuk in the expansion draft of 1967 when the statistics and the films said the Dower veteran was as good as he had ever been, which was another way of saying Terry Sawchuk was the greatest. It wasn't easy to prove otherwise. The Leafs had won the Stanley Cup with a club that was far from being the best team in the league. They won because they got hot goaling from two oldsters, Sawchuk and Johnny Bauer. Maybe it was unfair to Bauer, but the moment of truth came on a Saturday afternoon in Chicago when the Blackhawks threatened to blast the Leafs out of the rink. Bauer, who had started in the Toronto net, was uncertain. Imlac switched goalies after the first period. What followed was a bit of history that's high among the things Chicago would like to forget. Bobby Hull knocked Sawchuk down with his first shot. The puck struck high on Sawchuk's shoulder. It might as well have been a sandbag. After the considerable numbness had left his arm, Sawchuk resumed and put together two of the greatest periods of goaling ever seen in Stanley Cup play. This was the assessment of friend and foe alike. The Blackhawks outshot the Leafs in that game 49-31. They tried every trick in the book, but it was no dice. Both clubs realized the Stanley Cup was won on that afternoon, although the Leafs didn't complete the mission until the following Tuesday on their own ice. Now that's when the Sawchuk saga should have ended. He had reached the end of the line. Everything that happened later merely tarnished what had gone before Los Angeles grabbed them joyfully in the expansion draft. The Kings expected Sawchuk to be the showpiece of their new franchise. In addition to being an outstanding goalie, he would help sell the game in Los Angeles. He was a name, that's important, in California. What they didn't know, or what they overlooked, was that Sawchuck was a loner, a normally moody and caustic individual who had almost no rapport with the people who buy the tickets. He was as likely to insult the communications media as he was to discuss goaling. So the Los Angeles venture was a costly flop as far as the Kings were concerned. It wouldn't have been so bad if Sacha could have matched the goaling he gave the Leafs, but that wasn't possible either. He just didn't have any of those Chicago feats left in his reflexes. At the end of the season, the Kings were glad to send him on his way. The Detroit Red Wings took him back, but they asked little of Terry. He got into only ten and a half games, but the charade wasn't quite over yet. New York Rangers acquired him for one specific purpose. Emil Francis, the Rangers general manager and coach, felt Terry was capable of playing 10 to 15 games when Ed Jockerman showed signs of weariness. This turned out to be a terrible mistake. Terry was never a practice goalie. His theory was if he stopped the puck during the games, somebody else could stop it during the workouts. This philosophy was acceptable when he was number one in the league, but it was no good when he was a spot stopper to be used when the regular guy suffered from fatigue. 
when the Rangers started their skid from first to fifth place, the help which Sawchuck expected from Sawchuck simply wasn't there. Terry's attitude had also worsened along with the deterioration of his family affairs. There was resentment within the club because he couldn't do the fireman act as he had done for Imlac in 1967. Sawchuck simply had run out of borrowed time. Imlac could make like a genius if, if he wanted to claim that he knew in April of 67 that the Sawchuck magic had ended. Punch had defied the odds when he drafted Sawchuck from Detroit in 1964. All the evidence was that it wouldn't work. Sawchuck had stamped himself as a one-club man, and that club was Detroit. Jack Adams had taken him into the Red Wing organization when he was 13, a hard-luck kid with a permanent bend in his right arm. It was the result of a childhood accident, and it was to plague him all his days. Playing for Jack Adams, Terry became the first player ever to win the Rookie Award in three different leagues, the United States Hockey League, the American Hockey League, and the NHL. He broke the old NHL shutout record of 94, which was held by George Hainsworth years earlier. In one Stanley Cup campaign, which was in 1952, against Toronto and Canadians, Terry allowed only, get this, five goals in eight games, and none of the five goals occurred on Detroit home ice. Yet, when Adams traded him to Boston, it didn't take. In his second season, Sawchuck walked in on the late uh, Walter Brown, owner of the Bruins, and told him, I'm fed up, my nerves are gone, I quit, and I'm going to stay quit. So Jack Adams got him back to Detroit in exchange for Johnny Busick, and it took the Bruins a long time to prove that that was a good trade. When Sid Abel, general manager of the Wings by this time, finally decided Sawchuck was a luxury he could no longer protect, it was 1964 and Sawchuck was 35. Imlac grabbed him in the draft. Punch explained what um, everyone figured was a curious move at the time. He said, I didn't figure I was taking any great gamble. I knew his record. His age didn't matter. In fact, I told him to throw his birth certificate in a garbage can. When Sawchuck was let go in 1967, Imlac was asked if he realized that Sawchuck, after one of the greatest playoff performances of all time, was at the end of his career. Punch said he didn't. At, at uh, the time, he was allowed to protect only one goalie in the expansion draft, and that goalie was going to be Johnny Bauer. Punch said, I had to go along with Bauer. He had been with me longer. Sawchuck was the one who had to leave. It's too bad the story of troubled Terry Sawchuck didn't end there. There might not be a story of Sawchuck's tragedy today if it had ended there. Windsor, Ontario is right across the river from Detroit in southern Ontario, and, and the folks in that Canadian town always figured that the Detroit Red Wings were their home team, as most people in uh, that Ontario province followed the Maple Leafs. Jack Dolmage was the longtime sports editor of the Windsor Star, and of course, like Joe Falls and Jack Bear, he spent a lot of time covering the Red Wings and Terry Sawchuk, and he wrote this tribute to the re former Red Wing Bruin Maple Leaf King and Ranger goalie. Terry Sawchuck died with 103 shutouts on his belt and what a lot of people forget, another 12 
in the Stanley Cup playoffs. He was 40 and was still stopping pucks, his body punished from a lifetime of injury and pain. Terry Sawchuk was simply the best goalkeeper I ever saw. He was strong, fast, unassailable, fearless, and he never beat himself. He was not the same after suffering a bout of mononucleosis while he was with the Bruins in 1956, but his brilliance, courage, and resourcefulness had such depth the difference hardly seemed worth talking about. In fact, even discussing it would be akin to discussing Gordie Howe slowing down at 30, at 35, or at 40. Terry had arthritis so bad at one time, he couldn't raise his arms above his shoulders, but he could beat the best shooters in the National Hockey League. Talking about shutouts, uh, Jack Dolmage mentions that George Hainsworth, the legendary Toronto goalkeeper, made 22 shutouts in 44 games one season, and that was a record Sacha couldn't beat, but he went past Hainsworth, the shutout total of 94, three years before now. Nobody might beat Terry's output of 103. The game has gone to heavier scoring and the two-goaler system. Glenn Hall of St. Louis owns 82 shutouts, and he's third on the list. It's doubtful he'll approach Hainsworth total, let alone Sawchuk's. A Glenn bagged only one shutout last season. Jock Plant, now with Toronto, has 73, and nobody else in today's game is anywhere close. Harry Lumley retired in 1961 with 71 shutouts and 803 NHL games. Turk Broda retired in 1952 with 62 in 630 games. In years to come, the legend of Sawchuk will grow because he achieved his feats in the golden era of the game, in a six-team league embracing the greatest talent and most volatile competition in the history of the National Hockey League. Jack tells us about the pinnacle of Terry Sawchuk's career, which came in 1952 when he was just 22 years old. That was a season when Gordie Howe scored 47 goals and when the Red Wings were in the middle of the record seven consecutive NHL first place finish championships. The Detroit club swept over Toronto four straight in the semifinals and over Montreal four straight in the Stanley Cup Final. In those eight games, Sachuk gave up only five goals and made four shutouts for a goals against average in the Stanley Cup playoffs of 0.62. We will never see that mark again. The Canadians scored only two of the five goals that Terry surrendered during the playoff series. Perhaps the best way to rank Sawchuk is to say that he was a superstar among goalkeepers, possibly the greatest of any era. He was consistently brilliant. He was as tough in regular season competition as in the playoffs. Some notable goalers ran to high averages in regular play, but low in the playoffs. Others did it the other way around. Sawchuk was a low average goalie at all levels of competition at all times of the season. Jack Dolmage continues with his column saying Sawchuk is certainly to make the Hockey Hall of Fame, 
When in three years have elapsed uh, to uh, permit his eligibility to the hallowed hall. He was moody, yes, at times difficult with reporters, yes. But in light of the almost incessant miseries, one can only wonder that he was even civil to reporters at all. If Terry wasn't entering the hospital for one thing or another, it was because one some member of his family was. Terry had seven children. Bob Pulford skated over his hand one time and almost took it off. The wound required more than a hundred stitches. Looking back, I can't recall seeing his body without ugly black, purple, and yellow marks on it. He took terrific beatings from the puck and from collisions with his players. Terry was built like a big praying mantis. He was all arms and legs and bones and bowed in two or three different directions. He was a wreck except that he had great strength and endurance and the heart of a lion. He was competitive beyond the call of most athletes blessed with better physical equipment. It was grimly ironic that having survived a wicked procession of injuries and ailments, Terry should succumb to a common postseason rough and tumble with a teammate. District Attorney William Kahn said of his death that it was tragic, senseless, bizarre, and completely accidental. But Terry Sawchuck wasn't born to be lucky. He was just born to be the best goalkeeper around. Dick Beddoes wrote for the Globe and Mail in 1970, and he was uh, a guy who could uh, construct brilliant prose, but he was also a writer whom you could at any time love, hate, enjoy, despise, disrespect, or be just in, entranced by him at any given time, depending on Dick's mood and sometimes depending on your own. Here's uh, some excerpts of the column that Dick Beddoes wrote upon learning of the passing of Terry Sawchuck. It was a small joke when he lived that Terry Sawchuck was the kind of person who made Blue Cross popular. Dick then goes into a, a description of all the injuries Terry suffered, and we'd been through that several times. Dick went on to write that the curious thing was that after every session in an emergency ward, Sawchuck recovered to play goal as well as it ever has been played in the National Hockey League. Terry Sawchuck grew up in Winnipeg, but he didn't live in Winnipeg for many years before he left to practice his goaltending craft in the professional realm. They'll be remembering him today, but around Prince Edward Public School in the East Kildonan sector. He grew up there, dogged and determined, a chubby kid who wore his nickname Butch as a badge of juvenile toughness. There was an uncommon persistence about his dedication to obtaining work in the NHL. He refused to attend movies as a child, lest the glare hurt his eyes. He avoided reading school books for the same reason. Sawchuck tended goal in the stand-up fashions admired by purists, seldom off his feet, almost never sprawled. To watch him make a save was to wonder who did the choreography. Out the arm, over the stick, up the glove and catch one puck and throw it into the corner. All in such swift succession that he was a long paddle blur. Dick talked about the game we've mentioned several times here against Chicago and the performance in the Stanley Cup Finals. He described the scene in the Toronto dressing room after the Maple Leafs had dispatched the Montreal Canadiens to win the Stanley Cup in 1967. 
Sawchuck sat off by himself as the Toronto dressing room after that game, smoking, answering questions from reporters he didn't always admire, taking reflective gulps from a paper cup containing Coca-Cola. Everyone had dressed and all had left before Sawchuck went off to shower. There was the merest hint of vanity in the last thing he said about subduing Chicago. I'd like to leave hockey like that, he said, on top. On June 9th, Dick Beddoes uh, had another column on Terry Sawchuck. Uh, this time, it, it was uh, a very interesting one that I want to pass along because it was about a letter written to him by a young hockey fan who summed up how he felt about Terry Sawchuck. And I think uh, it's important to, to relate to you just how the fans viewed Terry Sawchuck as well. It seemed that enough, and maybe more than enough, had been said about the death of Terry Sawchuck. So much of the aftermath seems to have had a vulturious quality. And then, before suburban postmen rotated on strike, there was this letter from Terry Moore, 22. Its fulsome praise may express better than what the gaunt goalkeeper meant to juvenile fans than did the understatement preferred in this space. Enclosed as a tribute to Sawchuck, I would like very much to see it in print in the Globe and Mail. My ambition is to be a writer, but I'm writing this primarily because I admired Yuki very much. Mr. Moore's memorial began, I never did meet Terrence Gordon Sawchuck, but I always remember him with special fondness. Wasn't it just 15 years ago at the tender age of seven that I first came upon hockey and an idol to go with it? Being young and easily swayed, I was soon convinced that a professional hockey goalie with the same first name as myself just had to be the greatest thing since Mother Goose and Puppy Dogs. Instantly, I was a Terry Sawchuck fan for life. Children don't judge men by their reputations or their personal tension. At about the same time, I discovered the bubblegum cards of NHL stars. It was an obvious to anyone who cared to notice that I was under the spell of the great Detroit puck stopper. I mean, when you trade four Gordy Howes and two Rocket Richards for one of Terry's pictures, well, you like them. Beddoes writes that Mr. Moore got caught up in the common human failing of remembering the past as pervaded with some sort of golden glow. We forget the disagreeable and recall all days as good old days when they were far enough behind. I don't want to dwell on his injuries, awards or stops in Boston, Detroit, Toronto and Los Angeles or even his final months in New York. I suppose his injuries made him more famous than his dazzling feats on the ice, says Mr. Moore. Mr. Moore says, I want to dwell on those earlier years when I began to keep a scrapbook, something to reflect on or show my children someday, and our Sunday afternoon road hockey games, which allowed me to borrow the magic of Sawchuck's name and crouch, just wouldn't play unless my team was Detroit and I could play goal. Childhood, perhaps it is best defined as a time when nobody has skates of clay. In his bad games, I kept praising Yuki and telling my friends he'd bounce back. He always did, whether it was from injury or defeat. I read rumors of his uncooperative attitude towards fans, reporters, teammates, and family, but I wasn't, I wasn't concerned. As I grew older, I realized he was a complex personality with severe personal problems. 
It wasn't his job to be friendly and outgoing. His job was to stop frozen rubber. Why couldn't people understand this instead of criticizing him for it? Terry Moore concluded, Terrence Gordon Sawchuck died the way he lived, the way he played hockey. He died hard. When he passed away, I cried. Not sobs, but a few tears of respect and regret. In 15 years, I had come to know Terry, not personally, but rewardingly. My scrapbook now has a section which isn't filled with champagne bubbles or shutouts, but with memories and sorrow. In an unmailed get well card and newspaper clippings of his final life. Terry is dead, but he lives on. I'll never forget him. I wish I could trade four Gordy Howes and two Rocket Richards for Terry Sawchuck now. But life, unfortunately, isn't on the trading block. We want to end this uh, series on the passing of Terry Sawchuk with a, a piece from Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times, who reported so brilliantly on this whole affair back in 1970. This is not specifically about the death of Terry Sawchuk, but it is uh, in a, a column written shortly after the uh, grand jury announcement was made. Uh, it was a column entitled Hockey's Violent World. And what it basically does is describes the mentality as seen by a reporter in New York City of hockey players in 1970. Reading it today in 2021, uh, it's not com uh, particularly politically correct. It may contain some things that, that you find maybe a little off color, a little offensive. Maybe you might think it's not true, but this was the prevailing view of hockey players by hockey fans in the United States in 1970. And it sort of captures the whole uh, aura around hockey players of the day. And we'll uh, bring it to you as we conclude our series. The irony in Terry Sawchuk's death is that after 20 years of holding down one of hockey's most dangerous positions, goalie, he succumbed to injuries, suffered on the lawn of a rented house after the season was over. It will be up to Nassau County Grand Jury to determine whether to indict Ron Stewart and possibly others in the goalie's death. But questions of the violent world in which Sawchuck played are inevitably brought up as one wonders how athletes separate their daily world from the competitive one. For hockey players, the first thing to remember is they are different. Their background has made them different, and not just because they are overwhelmingly Canadian. From the time they're seven or eight years old, playing under conditions that would be the envy of many collegiate football coaches in the United States, they are taught the importance of winning, the importance of hitting the other fella before he hits you. Several years ago, a coach out of a Bantam team and now an employee of the New York Rangers was angered at one of his 10-year-olds. The boy didn't check in the corners. The coach picked up the youngster and hung him by the suspenders on a clothing peg in the locker room. He told the boy, you stay there until you learn to hit. I don't know how the boy was going to learn anything hanging on a a post in a uh, locker room. 
The subject of violence arose in the Ted Green-Wayne Mackey stick duel trial last week. The judge has not as yet made his determination as to whether Green is criminally liable, but Green had this to say. I accept the skull fracture as part of the game. There aren't a lot of guys wearing panties out there, you know. A psychiatrist sees the violence as an integral part of the subculture of hockey players. It must be difficult for some of the young men growing up to separate the values he is given in life. Look deeply enough and I'm sure you'll find a father prodding the boy on. Ultimately, the player sees his success in terms of his manhood. You're going to find a lot of them carousing and always proving themselves. But most boys, especially in the United States, learn that brain power is more formidable than muscle. Apparently, many athletes retain in their private lives the need to show their manhood. Fans often wonder just how players react to rivals off the ice or when a former enemy joins the team. John Ferguson, the Montreal Canadiens bruiser, never talks to a player from another team. A few years ago, he was supposed to speak at an off-season banquet when he learned that Red Kelly, one of the most gentle players in the history of hockey, was to be another guest speaker. Ferguson turned down the information. And I'll add here in my own personal uh, experience, I was good friends with former Maple Leaf captain the late Ted Kennedy and Ted told me that this was the prevailing attitude among players in the 16 league. Ted said that when he was walking down the street in Toronto and he would see another player and he mentioned one specific incident with Ted Lindsay approaching him on the street one of them would cross and walk on the other sidewalk across the street. They would not pass each other on the same side of the street. Ted said this happened with several of his uh, more uh, esteemed opponents during his hockey career. So Eskenazi continues in his article, Yet Ranger fans have noticed Bob Nevin talking to his former Toronto teammates whenever the clubs meet. And Ron Stewart also enjoys gabbing with his old cronies on the team. Players will say that for the record that they harbor no grudges when an old rival joins their team. Some years ago when Red Sullivan became the coach of the Rangers one of his players was Doug Harvey. When Harvey was with Canadians he had a speared Sullivan so severely that uh, for a time he nearly died from the blow while he was in hospital. Sullivan maintained he held no grudge but in the early hours of the morning, he would recall the incident when discussing it with his friends. Fans will also remember the time that Bill Lezenicki's teammates on the Bruins watched as Ted Lindsay of the Red Wings gave him an unmerciful beating. Lezenicki had joined the Bruins after years with the Toronto Maple Leafs, for whom he had been an outstanding battler. It's possible that hockey players are the way they are, stoic about receiving stitches, about not wearing helmets, because their options are not so great as an American youngsters. Three quarters of the players in the National Hockey League never graduated from high school, but the majority of athletes playing in the big league sports in the United States have attended college. Take away the game from them and they would possibly have an easier time finding a job than a former hockey player. The row of paper cups filled with false teeth 
that line the locker room walls are mute testimony to the hockey player's violent life. Those cups are their badges. We thank you for joining us for this four-part series where we examine the uh, death of Terry Sawchuck, which was one of the biggest hockey stories in 1970, and, and how the media uh, covered the whole thing. It was a very personal thing for me. Uh, I felt Terry was the greatest goalkeeper of all time. Fifty years later, I still feel that way. Thank you very much.